morning as we worship a beautiful, glorious, living, dynamic, life-transforming God. A God who holds the nations in the palm of his hand. And I want to start by thanking Creswick for sparing Pastor Steve as he globe trots for us, teaching, training leaders of leaders, pastors in their own country. You may not be aware, but uh, Pastor Steve has written two books for us. One is uh, a book about life-transforming apologetics, and the other one is about ethics, global ethics, and we're raising funds to distribute three to 5,000 of these throughout the Philippines. Uh, Steve and Danielle are co-authors of this book. And if you'd like a copy, there's a sign-out sheet at the back, and we'll put them in your hand. Uh, they're $15 each, but the funds go directly into the publication costs. So, again, thank you so much for sparing Pastor Steve to teach leaders, global leaders, overseas. 90% of all pastors have had no theological training at all. So Kerry seeks to go to Mongolia, Philippines, we're exploring Kenya and Ethiopia, we're in Cuba, we're in Madagascar, Nepal and other places, teaching, training and serving indigenous leaders. So thank you for that. We're going to be looking at a very exciting yet frightening book called the book of Judges. So I'm going to ask to turn, uh, that you turn with me to Judges chapter 3, or they'll put it on the screen behind me. But before I read it, let me just paint a background picture for you. The book of Judges really begins at the death of Yeshua, Joshua. And it concludes, really, with the anointing of the first king of Israel, King Saul. It starts with Othniel as one of the judges, will end with Samson, but in reality, the last judge was the kingmaker, Samuel. The book spans about 326 years. And within that book, you'll see a cycle of misery. Yet God will break through. God will restore his people when they turn, when they repent. So the first key to this book is that they failed to submit to God's rule. Instead of coming under the theocracy, under the ethical principles and laws of God, everyone decided to do what is right in their own eyes. And that's the last verse of the last chapter. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Everyone doing right in their own eyes. We could ask, for example, across Canada, we could ask Donald Trump, is he doing right in his eyes or in the eyes of God. We could ask Putin, 
Is he doing right in the eyes of God or in his own eyes? Or Xi Jinping, these world powerful leaders, each one doing right in their own eyes. They want to be autonomous. Autos is self, nomos is law. They want to be a law unto themselves. They decide what's right, what's wrong. They decide new principles and precepts. Desiring to be as God's brings us straight back into the garden when Satan whispered into the ears of Eve. So that's where they're at. They've seen the glory of God, the majesty of God, the power of God. Now they want to be like God. They want to be autonomous, independent from God. The second key to this cycle of misery was that they failed to carry out the purging and the purifying of the land. Joshua, Jesus went in, demolished the strongholds, ripped open the jaws of darkness, but still there were pockets within the land of Canaan. They were to eradicate them. They would continue to purge and purify the land, but they didn't. They compromised, just like we do. Instead of driving out the forces of darkness, they entered into covenant, they willed, they dealed, they set up economies. And it's just like us. When we're born again, when we're sanctified, we reach a level of acceptability to ourselves and to others but we also ought to purge the land of our heart. We also ought to purge out negative thoughts, purge out fear, purge out doubts, purge out lust, purge out sin. We're not to accept the status quo, but we're to be engaged in a holy warfare with sin within our own heart and our own life. The third key is something that every Christian parent dreads, and that's intermarriage. We all dread the fact that one day our sons and daughters will marry an unbeliever. And that's what was happening. It happened before, pre-flood, and brought down the devastation of God upon the earth. And now it was happening again. Even though there are explicit commands that they were to keep themselves for God, they were to marry within the tribes, they did not. They shared their sons, their daughters, and corruption continued. Fourth key, that the judges, and there are many of them, are really types of Christ. They look forward to the ultimate judge, the ultimate saviour, the ultimate deliverer who would step onto the stage of redemptive history and push back the forces of darkness as he ushers in the kingdom of light. So those are some of the keys as we open up and as we walk through the book of Judges. So permit me to read, I'm going to read from verse 6 
just to verse 11, although I will be covering the entire chapter. Verse 6 right through to 11. Just... Speaking of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, verse 6. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. The anger of the Lord burnt against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushayim Rithaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rephaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. Our beautiful, beautiful, majestic God, we gather around your throne this morning. We thank you that you receive us with an open heart and with an open hand. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you strengthen us and encourage us? You know our needs. You know our thoughts. You weigh our heart. Would you speak to us that we may know we've met with God this morning and that God has spoken to us through his word. To thee and to thee alone be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Do you ever feel inadequate? You can't cope? Sometimes we feel this and it imprisons us. It, it, it's like a handcuff. We can't minister. We can't do what we would like to do because we feel inadequate. Perhaps in the area of witnessing, we feel we don't, don't have the smarts or, or the intellect of Pastor Steve, and therefore we feel somewhat restrained or constricted. We feel inadequate. Or perhaps we, we feel inadequate that we don't have the gifts. We don't have the speaking gifts or, or the capacity to be a, as articulate as we would like. And so we're hindered from ministry. Some of us perhaps have been emotionally scarred in life and broken. And that has built fears and phobias within our heart and life. And we feel inferior, therefore inadequate, to reach out 
with the life-saving words of God. Some of us, perhaps, have had some moral failures in our background, and we just can't let them go. Even though there is the cross, even though there is forgiveness, even though our God is a restoring God, yet those moral failures haunt us, restrict us from ministering to broken hearts and broken hands around Too many Christians today are paralyzed and that is why the church is not as mobilized and as energized as it ought to be. But the good news this morning, and that's what gets me excited, the good news is that God uses all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds for his plan and his purpose. That includes you, and that includes this inadequate guy, me. God is an exciting God. He loves to take the weak things. He loves to take the broken things and use them in order to get the glory due his name. And we're going to see this with three very different kinds of people. We're going to be looking at the life, albeit briefly, of Othniel, a warrior. We're going to be looking at Ehud, an assassin. And we're going to be looking at Shamgar, a farmer, an outsider. Three very different people from very different backgrounds with very different abilities, yet in the hands of God. They will be used to pull down strongholds of darkness and usher in the kingdom of light. Well, let's first focus and zoom in on Othniel. There he is, starting from verse 7 on. Othniel's name is significant. In Hebrew, it means lion of God. And of course we know that the ultimate lion is also the lamb, Jesus the Christ. The ultimate deliverer is of course Jesus the Christ. So Othniel's name, lion of God, a man of courage. Well, in verse 7 it starts off with this cycle of misery. The Israelites did evil In the eyes of the Lord, they forgot the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the personal name of God, the covenant name of God. They forgot all that God had done. They forgot about the way he demolished the Egyptians. They forgot about the way he opened up the Red Sea. They forgot about the way he pulled down the fortress Jericho. They forgot about the way he had used Joshua to demolish the forces of darkness. They forgot. And we have a tendency to do that. Forget the goodness of God when we're facing the good times. Because the good times at this point were rolling. They were in the land of milk and honey. It's the most dangerous time when the good times are rolling. 
They forgot God. And worse, they turned to the idols. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Today, what do we serve? Is it the bank? Is it our career? Is it power? Is it authority? Do we worship our children even? Where do we spend our time? What do we ascribe worth to? They had their idols. We have our idols also. As Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory. Well, they were worshipping their idols. They had forgotten about God. And God responds in this cycle of misery, verse 8, with anger. The anger of the Lord was aroused. He burnt against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushem Rithaim. In Hebrew, that means God sold them into the hands of double trouble. You ever met double trouble? You ever met Cushem Rithaim? Should be triple trouble sometimes in my life anyway. But it's God who summons the forces of darkness to discipline his children in order that they may be humbled to restore them. God is the prime mover selling his people into the hands of double trouble. You see, God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. He loves us too much to turn his back on us. He loves us too much to wash his hands of us. He loves us enough to send trial and trouble, not to destroy, but to restore. Just like a parent. Disciplining his children. Oh, shouldn't say that today. But disciplining their children, not to hurt, but to restore. God is a restoring God. He's in the restoring business. And so he summons double trouble. And they come up from the south, they enter into the land, and they subdue the land. How many years? Eight years. Eight years of double trouble. Eight years of trial. Eight years of brokenness. Eight years of darkness. But now we see they turned. They repented. They turned from their idols and they turned back to the true God. Look carefully there. Verse 9. When they cried out to the Lord, and sometimes the Lord has to bring us to our knees before we pour out our soul Unto him. Eight years it took them. Not one, not two, not three or four. Eight entire years before they turned back to that beautiful, loving, gracious, restoring God. How long does it take us? Is there some sin we're playing or dabbling with? That God has sent some trial and trouble? As we sow, we reap. Or take courage when you turn back to God, when you repent, when you turn to come back with a beautiful God, God hears and God answers prayer. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? 
No matter how much we mess up, no matter how far we wander, no matter how deep we fall into the miry pit, when we turn back to him, he reaches out and he restores us. He delivers us from our sin. What a beautiful God. Well, he's going to raise up Othniel. Othniel, the warrior. Now, tell us something about this Othniel. Othniel is a very privileged man. His uncle was the mighty Caleb. You remember Caleb, who stood shoulder to shoulder with Joshua? We can take on the giants. We can go into the fortified cities. If God is with us, we can go. And the people were so excited, they picked up stones, ready to stone Joshua and Caleb. Even in his old age, the old Caleb said, Give me that mountain! No such thing as retirement there. Having uncle in your family, breathing the same air, listening to the same stories, hearing the great victories, seeing the wonder of God in and through uncle, he from knee high up was bred for battle. And so are some of you. You've come from Christian homes, Homes where love and devotion to Christ were clearly evident. You've been taught knee-high up about Joshua, about Moses, about the Lord Jesus. I had to wait till I was 25, coming out of spiritism. And even then I was saying, what about that guy Job? Not knowing it was Job and who's Moses and, and who's Elijah. And I had no real background whatsoever. But some of you are so privileged. Well, you can even say not only is mum and dad a Christian, but granddad and grandma. Or some of you come back from missionary families or pastor families. You're so blessed that you can see faith being evidenced in real deal life. And so God would raise him up. He's already a proven warrior. If you have your notes, you can do a flashback to Judges 1, 12 and following, or Joshua 15 and 17. He had already proved himself. Now, Othniel was God's man at God's time. And verse 10 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him it is never by my it is never by power but it is by my spirit says the lord literally he was clothed in the spirit of god he was filled by the spirit of god he was energized empowered invigorated by the spirit of god and he went forth for the glory of god You see, the glory and the honor is not to Othniel. He is a clay pot vessel in the hands of God. The glory and the honor of deliverance and salvation is always with God. Regardless of the instrument used, God will not share his glory 
with anyone. Being filled with the Spirit of God. Did you know that's commanded to us? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, 18. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine. You know, it kind of controls us, dominates us, affects our speech, our logic, empowering over us. Don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. A bit of gogglygook, that's a present, passive, imperative, second person, plural. What does that all mean? It means simply this. We, the church of Ephesus, was commanded to continue, there's the present, to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's a passive. You can't jump up and down or whip it up through song to be filled with the Spirit of God, rather to be yielded to the Spirit's control. It's a passive. Present, ongoing, yielding to the Spirit's control. And it's an imperative. It's not for the select two or three. It's for everyone. The command is given because it's in the second person plural, which means the entire church. So my Pentecostal friends see things a bit differently. That's fine. But here in Ephesians 5, 17, 18, be filled with the Spirit of God. Yield your lives to God's control. And that will impact your worship. It will come from the heart. And it will impact your relationships Wives with husbands, husbands with wives, children and family. Can't do it by ourselves. We need the enabling of the Spirit of God, just like Othniel. Othniel is raised up as an answer to prayer. He goes forward for the glory of God and he demolishes the powers of darkness. He kicks out double trouble, Ushain Rithaim, and the land now is subdued and rested For how many days? 40 days. Usually the number 40 is trouble. But God has spoken shalom over it. Peace for 40 years. The good times are rolling again. And we're going back to the cycle of misery. The good times are a dangerous time. Everything is being blessed, the monies are coming in, work is coming in, everyone's doing, again, sadly, their own thing. Look carefully, please, at verse 12, as we focus this time on another judge, Ehud. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because They did this evil. The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So again we see this cycle. They forgot the Lord. They turned back to idols. Turned their back on God, a loving, gracious, tender-hearted God. Ignored him. Went about their own thing, claiming their own autonomy. God loves them too much. So this time, instead of Coming up from the south, the Mesopotamians, he calls them from the east. Crossing over the Jordan, they subdue the area called Palms. Who called them? Who gave them power over the children of light? 
Was it not God? Did you not read in your Bible there that it was God? Lord, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. The principle is, is that God uses all kinds of people, all different ethnic backgrounds, all different skills and abilities to accomplish his plan and purpose. Put your seatbelts on. God will even use evil and transform it to good. He summoned double trouble. He summons now the king of Moab and powers him to rule over his people. If you have trouble with that, Genesis 50 verse 20 is very clear. You remember Joseph? How he was betrayed and sold out by his brothers, how he was then eventually cast down into the prison, raised up as prime minister. They came to him for food, thinking they're under the protection of daddy, who was Israel. Israel dies, now it's payback. But he says this, you meant it for evil. And they did. But God turned it for good. What was the greatest evil ever committed in the history of human civilization? I tell you plainly, it was the taking hold of love incarnate with calloused hands and hardened hearts. They took our Savior, they punched his face, they pulled his beard. They stripped him naked, they banged nails into his hands and into his feet and stood him up and dropped him down on that cross. Hanging there between heaven and hell, mocking, insulting, loving carnage, God's own son. It was the greatest evil of all time. But God used it for our good and the salvation of his people. That our sin would be imputed to Christ. That he would be our propitiation. He would absorb the wrath of God for us. That's why in Christ we do not face an angry God. It's been extinguished. We face a loving heavenly father. Through the death of Jesus the Christ. But in Acts 2. 22-23. They are still responsible. With calloused hands, with evil hearts, they did what they did. They will be judged. But God would turn it for the good, the saving of his people. And same here, God would empower the king of Mesopotamia. He would empower Eglon, the king of Moab, according to his plan, according to his purpose, to discipline to restore back his people. Don't get locked into this dualistic kind of theology. Satan is like a little mosquito in the hands of God. There he is, look! And when God has finished, over. There's no contest. There's no contest. God is the supreme creator. Even Satan is but a creature. Before a holy God. 
So God empowers, he comes in, he subdues. How long did it take now? Look carefully. How long did it take before they would cry out to God, turn from their idols and turn back to God? How long would it take them? Somebody? 18 years. It was eight years before, now it's 18. The cycle of misery is going down. Boy, they're slow to learn, aren't they? Perhaps they're like me. Perhaps they're like you. We are slow to learn. We talk about the, uh, the Pharisees being stiff-necked. Oh, I know in my own heart, sometimes my wife would tell you, I'm pretty stubborn at times. God is gracious. When they call, when they cry, God is going to raise up a deliverer, a type of saviour. And this time it's Ehud. Now Ehud is a prominent man. Not necessarily the most popular man because he's been set apart to collect the tax. Now hands up those who like tax collectors. Do you like paying tax? Not really, do you? You do it because it's legal, but nobody really loves a tax collector. But he's been chosen to carry the tribute. I mean, these foreign kings, they want shekels in big supply. So he now collects the tax and is presenting it soon to the king. God loves a tax collector. I think his name was Matthew, is that correct? Yes. He loves all kinds of people, including me. <laughs> He's a very cunning man. But we're told very clearly there is a problem. There is a problem. Even though Eglon has raised up a coalition, coalition the Amorites, Amalekites are with him, He's a very cunning man. But we're told very clearly more about Ehud. We're told that he is a left-handed man. Now that's kind of interesting. Look carefully at verse 15. Have you got that in your Bible? He's a left-handed man. Well, now we have a big problem. How many left-handed people here? One, two, three, four, not many. Why is it a problem? Why does the Holy Spirit give such detail about a left-handed man by the name of Ehud? The problem is, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. What does that mean? Well, in Hebrew, Benjamin means right hand. How can you have a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe? Give me a break. Something is going on. And so they would look at him as either deformed or handicapped or having a screw loose of some kind. You cannot have a left-handed man in a right-handed tribe. That is a no-no. And that's probably why they picked on him to take the tribute. But God is going to use that very handicap to pull down the forces of darkness, ushering in the kingdom of light. What happens? He goes with the money, 
But before he does, he takes a sword, a short sword, a long dagger, and he places it on his right thigh. Right there. So as he comes, there's a body search. There's a foreigner coming in. Before he goes before the great doors, the guards are there. They pat him down. Well, they know that everyone from the tribe of Benjamin is what-handed? Right hand. So with your right hand, where am I going to put my dagger? I'm going to put it on my left thigh, if I have one. But if I'm left-handed, where am I going to put it? On my right thigh. That's exactly what he does. So he goes in and he presents the tribute. And then as they go out, he comes back and he says to Eglon, King, I've got a secret for you. A message from God. Whoa! He's like bunny rabbit ears. We all love secrets, don't you? Sure you do. Get out, everybody! Everybody out! It's for you only, king. Everybody out! His heart is... Now all his bodyguards are gone. All his attendants are gone. Yes, king, I've got a message from God. He takes, very explicit, takes his left hand to his right thigh, pulls out the sword and thrusts it into his belly. We're even told about his weight and dimensions. His belly is so fat that the dagger or sword goes straight in and the fat folds cover it over. That's the message. Oh yeah, from God. One man pulling down the prince, as it were, of power of darkness at that time. One man in the hand of God. One woman in the hand of God can devastate the kingdom of darkness. He goes out, closes the doors. Doesn't say in the scriptures, but I suggest he says, he's in the washroom. And off he goes. Now the guards are scared to go in. I would be too. And then they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then suddenly they go in. The door's locked. They wait, wait, wait. They go in eventually. And then they say, well, yeah, he's on the washroom. We better not. I mean, you wouldn't want to disturb Queen Victoria II on the washroom, would you? I don't think so. You wait patiently. Meanwhile, he's gone out, blowing the trumpet, summoning the Israelites. And now they place a strategy to go to the fords knowing that when the king is dead, there's going to be panic. And when there's panic, everyone makes a bolt for home, safety, security. But to get there, you've got to cross the Jordan. You're moving from the west to the east, and so he sets a trap at the fords. And as they run for what they think is safety and security, they run into the lion's mouth. 10,000 of them are demolished. 10,000. God uses that very handicap, that very weakness to pull down the forces of darkness and usher in the glory of peace for his people. What a wonderful God. Even our weakness 
in his hands. He can use to demolish the forces of evil. What a great God. Now we come to the final judge. He's really a minor judge, Shamgar. Do you see him there in verse 31? And Ehud, after Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. So they got the invaders, the Mesopotamians from the south, dealt with by Othniel the warrior. They had the Edomites coming from the east, dealt with by Ehud. Now there's inroads of the Philistines from the west. And here we have Shamgar, farmer Shamgar. Now he's not like an Othniel from great bloodlines, and he's not like the assassin Ehud and cunning. He's just the run of the mill Joe, a nobody really. But in the hands of God, that nobody would be somebody. The Philistines come in and they are dealt with. He slays 600. Now, we don't know if that's a total figure, whether it was a number of skirmishes, or we don't know if it was one big battle. But he puts to flight, to death, 600 of the enemy. Who is this man? Well, it's interesting. If you know, he's Shamgar, the son of who? Anath. That's a problem. Anath is the Canaanite god of sex and war. Now we have a problem. We can solve it by two ways. Either his family were Israelites who had apostatized and embraced the gods of the Canaanites and Shamgar turned back to God, or he was a Canaanite in the beginning with his family who was converted to God. We don't know which. But we do know he was a farmer and he used what was in his hand. What did he have in his hand? He had an ox goat. That doesn't tell us much. But in fact, it's about eight foot long. And at one end, you've got a, a bit of a spear that you use to prod the cattle. And at the other end... There's an iron piece that you can break up the soil with. So he used what was in his hands. But his hands were in the hand of God. And he demolished the prince, prince of powers, the Philistines. What have you got in your hand? What gift or talent or ability or funds or finance or time have you got in your hand that you're willing to give to God that he can use it for the kingdom and for the glory of his dear son? He's given each one of you whatever is in your hand, whatever gift, whatever ability, whatever capacity, whatever time allotted to you, is it placed in his hands? Or is it about you? Or is it about God? I love this feeding of the 5,000. 
Jesus is preaching his heart out. There's 5,000 guys plus women, children, probably 10,000 plus. And then he does a balance check. He looks at the balance sheet. Most deacons are good at that. Look at how much money have we got? So he turns to his disciples and says, feed them. There's over five, feed them. (laughs) There's no McDonald's, there's no Wendy's. What do they do? James, what did you bring for lunch? Oh, I didn't bring it. Peter, what about I didn't bring anything. So there's a little kid, some poor little kid, got mummy's lunch. What was it? Five rolls and two fish. Can we take that, please, for the master? Here it is, five loaves, two fish. 10,000 people. There it is. What did Jesus say? It is enough. I love that. No matter our weakness, no matter our past failures, no matter our difficulties or our issues, in the hands of God, it is enough. And so Jesus takes that boy's lunch and in the hands of Almighty in the flesh, blesses it and feeds the multitudes, that there's leftovers to be gathered. I am nothing, you are nothing, we are nothing. We're clay pots cracked at best. But in the hands of God, he can take a nobody into a somebody. In the hands of God, he can use an Othniel warrior. And perhaps there's some here who will step out boldly for the glory of God. Or in Ehud, some weakness, some flaw, some difficulties. He can use that just as he did with Johnny. A young girl who broke her neck, quadriplegic, ministers to the world. In God's hands. What's in your hands? That you and I, Shangars, can give to God to pull down strongholds of darkness and usher in the kingdom of light. Well, let me bring this together. Othniel was a warrior, trained, groomed from a great family, clothed in the Spirit of God, because without the Spirit we can do nothing. But he went forward for the glory of God. Ehad, the handicapped, used what he had to gain access to Eglon to pull down the forces of darkness. In his weakness, God made him strong. Shangar, a nobody into a somebody. What's in your hand? It's enough. It's an ox goad. It's a farming instrument, for goodness sake. I'm fighting up against war-born Philistines. Have you seen those Philistines? They're armed to the teeth. They're nasty kind of people. They're bred for warfare. I'm only a farmer. But in the hands of God, I can do great things. God uses all kinds of people to accomplish his plan, his purpose, and he's willing to use you. Are you willing to put your life, your time, your talent into his hand. 1 Corinthians tells us this, for you see 
your calling brothers and sisters we could add. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Many of us are weak, we're fragile, we're frail. I haven't got a lot to offer, but in the hands of God. We may not be a William Carey blazing a trail in Serampore, India. We may not have the name Hudson Taylor going forth in China or Adoniram Judson spending his life in Burma or C.T. Studd blazing the trail through Africa. But in the hands of God, we can do beautiful things. Be encouraged. Please, be encouraged. Be enriched. Be empowered. Be envisioned. What is God calling you to do? Let me close with two giants. Robert Murray McShane. It is not great gifts or great talents that God uses, but likeness to Jesus. A holy man or woman is an awesome weapon in the hands of God. And William Carey May it be said of Creswick, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Will you do that? Will you expect great things from God? Will you attempt great things for God? Because we are all weapons in the hands of a beautiful, loving, triune God. To him and him alone have the glory. Amen.